And the first time that parents' rights emerged as a rallying cry was actually in opposition to a constitutional amendment that would have banned child labor. This was led by conservative industry groups, and they were very opposed to this for a couple of reasons. One was that, you know, obviously they liked having access to a workforce that was cheap. It was overwhelmingly non-union and those, you know, those little fingers, they, they, they did some, some good work. And so uh, industry leaders opposed, opposed this. And they also just opposed the idea that, that we were going to have something like compulsory education. Signal is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm your host and the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michalego. Twice a month, we'll use this space to shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. We'll talk to guests who will help listeners navigate these perilous political waters by providing insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive routes. Jennifer Berkshire writes about the intersection of education and politics for the nation, the New Republic, the New York Times, and other publications. She is the creator and co-host of the Education Policy Podcast, Have You Heard?, and the co-author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. Jennifer teaches in the journalism program at Boston College and in the education studies program at Yale University. Her next book, The Education Wars, A Citizen's Guide and Defense Manual, will be out in 2024. Today, we speak to her about the rights long war in public education and how to fight back and win. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to The Signal. Thank you so much for having me. To start us off, um, what is the role of public education in our democracy? Well, that's a nice big question to start with. I think what's really interesting and what your listeners might not know is that our understanding of what role public education is for, what our schools are for, has really changed over time. And so way back in the early days, you know, people are always invoking the founders. Well, the founders were actually really worried that if if we were going to survive as a self-governing democracy, people were going to have to learn the skills and the tools necessary to do that, right? So they had a very clear sense. That's why we had schools, to raise up people who were capable of governing themselves. But then, you know, you fast forward and and we're also, you know, a rapidly industrializing country. And, you know, there are all these big factories and, and workplaces that need workers. And it's also a time that we are getting an enormous number of immigrants, particularly from, from, uh, from Southern Europe. And so our understanding of what schools did changed again. And this time it was going to be to produce, still producing citizens, but a lot of focus on producing workers and that you know workers would would producing workers for particular industries and and americanizing people as well so things uh, things motor along you start to see the rise of what we now understand as kind of tracking 
that, you know, some people are going to go to school to basically be prepared to be blue collar workers. And then there are other people who are going to be trained to be elites and they're going to learn things like Greek and Latin. So then, you know, time speeds along and people are, are getting more and more education, right? That now you're expected, you know, where the goal is to get everybody through high school. This is a huge change from, say, the, you know, 1930s or the 1940s when high school is still an elite thing. And, and then, you know, our understanding of what schools are for changes again. And now we really see schools as, as an agent of social mobility. Education is going to be the thing that enables us to rise up the ladder. And the big challenge here is that not everybody can rise up the ladder. And so we start to see education be understood as a limited commodity, right? That not everyone can get a great one. And, and it becomes something that we start to fight over. And so that's kind of where we are today, that everyone views education as essential, but they also view it as primarily an individual good, a commodity. So why do so many on the right hate public education? Another great question. Well, I would say that in in the broadest sense, because public education is a public good that we pay for, we tax ourselves to pay for it. And you know that, you know, that is a unique thing in America. We we treat very few areas of our life that way. We don't treat healthcare that way. We, you know, really the only public institutions we have left is we have post office and we have libraries and those are now embattled spaces too. So if you are opposed to the idea that, that of a public good that we pay for ourselves and that is run along what are lines that are frankly kind of socialist, right? We, we tax everybody and we redistribute the money. Even if you're in a state like Pennsylvania, where where school funding is really unequal, we have in our minds the idea that that it should be an institution that's open to all. Everybody should, you know, everybody's going to pay taxes to pay for it. And it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor, you get it. You get things like um, like school lunch, etc. And then the whole point of that education is to even out our inequities. And so you're starting to catch a glimpse of some things that you might be opposed to, right? If you don't like the idea of an institution aimed at smoothing out inequities, public education is going to be a big target for you. And then we get to the idea of what schools actually teach. And what's interesting about this is that you can go back decade after decade after decade and hear parents raising concerns that the schools are teaching kids things that are going to undermine family values. I saw a reference from a history book, I think it was from 100 years ago, where a parent is worried that that the school is going to turn the kid against white bread and insist that the family eat more healthy brown bread. Well, it doesn't take much imagination to take that example and plant it right in our present moment, where you have uh, parents in all different corners of the country saying, 
we don't like the fact that that schools are teaching kids values that might be opposed to what we hold dear in our household. And so when you add all those things up together, the fact that 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 it's a public institution that we all pay for, the fact that that its teachers are overwhelmingly unionized in a country where union membership is down under 10%, and when you think about the, the the role that schools play in in teaching kids to to aim higher and to ask for more, all of those things are are being fought over right now. So, what we're seeing today with what's been dubbed uh, the school board wars is actually just the latest flare up in the right's long war on public education. And like you just mentioned, it probably dates back at, at least 100 years um, when you had the KKK marching in the streets, carrying banners like one flag, one school, one Bible as part of their efforts to impose their bastardized versions of patriotism and religious values on education and the nation. Can you take us on a historical tour highlighting some of the key moments, if not battles, in this ongoing war in public ed? Yeah, because it's such an interesting history and we really don't know that much about it. And the first time that parents' rights emerged as a rallying cry was actually in opposition to a constitutional amendment that would have banned child labor and and something else that's right back in the headlines today. And this was led by conservative industry groups, and they were very opposed to this for a couple of reasons. One was that, you know, obviously they liked having access to a workforce that was cheap. It was overwhelmingly non-union. And those, you know, those little fingers, they, they, they did some, some good work. And so uh, industry leaders opposed, to the, opposed this. And they also just opposed the idea that, that we were going to have something like compulsory education, the, you know, the idea that by design we would try to make the, the country more equal. Um, as they saw it, you know, inequality existed by design. There were some people who were meant to be bosses and there were others who were meant to be workers. And so what's so interesting about this moment is that what people today would recognize as an astroturf campaign emerges. They set up various fake groups with names like Parents and Farmers United, and they they argued that if you banned child labor, if you put that into the Constitution, it would have all sorts of unintended consequences. So little Cyril couldn't help out on the family alfalfa farm. Little Jenny, she couldn't even help with the dishes. That's the extent of the federal overreach. And so, and it did, they, they succeeded um, in getting that campaign to ban child labor, it never. We don't have a constitutional amendment. We did, however, end up with cons with uh, compulsory education. And so every state has a law like that on the books. Although I predict it won't be long until you see folks trying to roll th that language back as well. And so they they won the battle but lost the war. And then and then you see the issue emerge repeatedly. Um, often along the lines of what you were describing, you drew this vivid picture of the Klan marching in the streets. Well, we're used to hearing conservatives rail against the federal Department of Education. And one thing I learned reading this history was that they were opposed to a federal Department of Education before it even existed. 
And their big concern was that, you know, there would be an effort made to push things like desegregation. And you can imagine that was something that, you know, if you have Klan, Klansmen marching through the, the streets, they are not keen on the idea that kids of all races should go to school together. And then you see it pop up again in the 70s and the 90s, and there are always similar themes. And the big one is that, that you have parents objecting to the speed of cultural change. In the 70s, they're really worried that the, the kids are being influenced by that anti-Vietnam era culture. They're growing their hair out. They're smoking. They're experimenting with drugs. They're rude to their elders. They're, they're making out. Um, and you hear parents saying, like, where are they learning this? It's not from me. It must be from the schools. Let's take the schools back. Same thing in the 90s. This time, it's about the growing push for gay and lesbian rights. You hear parents saying, this is all happening too fast slow it down, slow it down. And then we fast forward to the present day and we hear parents saying essentially the same thing once again, whether it's things like gender identity or that enormous wave of protest that swept the country in the wake of George Floyd's murder. You heard conservative parents saying, I don't understand where kids are learning this stuff because they're not learning it from me. We need to take our schools back. And so that in hopefully in as pithy way as I was capable of, that gives you a sense of just how old this is and why it keeps coming back. That was great. Thanks. Um, Republicans are hitching their electoral wagon to this latest iteration of the crusade against public ed. It recently held a hearing featuring Nicole Neely, um, president of Parents Defending Education, as well as Tiffany Justice, co-founder of Moms for Liberty, about so-called parents' rights and the imagined persecution of right-wing parents. The GOP-controlled House then a few days later passed a parental bill of rights, which tangibly didn't do much of anything except serve as a, a bugle call for right-wing parents to assemble for battle in their school districts. Can you unpack what this benign sounding slogan, parental rights, actually means to them and how Republicans have weaponized it? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that in the abstract can sound really appealing. Like who would get, be against the idea of parents being more involved in their kids' education? And we've now been, this has been the rallying cry since Glenn Youngkin's surprise victory in the Virginia governor's race. And I think what's really interesting is that as people get a clearer idea of what parents' rights mean, I often joke that it's not parents' rights, it's parent apostrophe S rights, because it means that a small select group of parents gets to dictate what an entire school community learns. And so that means that one parent in Florida can file an objection to a book or a movie. It can mean that a small group of parents in Texas can, can demand that certain books be removed from the library. And we're, we're seeing this exercise repeated in districts all over the country in states red and blue. And as, as, 
as people get an understanding that that's actually what we're talking about, that we're we're talking about small groups of parents or individual parents limiting what what an entire school can learn, that's where you see support for the cause really start to drop. And I think that's what makes it so interesting that that Republicans, not only are they missing the lesson that was learned as recently as the midterms, but they're barreling down a, a path that seems guaranteed to make them less popular. And I, I saw an interesting memo about this. It was from the Republican National Committee, kind of warning uh, candidates and, and state level parties back in 2021 saying, you know, you need to be careful about this parents' rights discourse. You need to focus on expanding the coalition and displaying empathy. And that this really, you know, this language about, about critical race theory and, and transgender stuff, it appeals to the hardcore base, but nobody else. And you think about how much more extreme their language has gotten since 2021, that for all the, the potential power of this message as they see it, I think we can look to poll after poll and seeing its appeal dropping. So culture war issues like we, we've talked about um, are front and center at school board meetings with groups like just Tiffany Justice's Moms for Liberty, which is their cell here in Bucks County is very active, um, you know, as well as their fellow travelers on the far right, either on the actual school boards or in the public ushering in conspiracies. Think Bertrism meets QAnon, about public schools trying to indoctrinate your kids into Marxism, attempting to bring pedophilia into classrooms. Um, more recently, um, Local Mom for Liberty suggested books on racial and social justice are responsible for inspiring people to commit murder. Um, and you had just mentioned empathy. Well, now the, you know empathy is like the, the latest target in their war on public ed. Um, how much of this is a Trojan horse to create chaos and, and destroy public education from within in order to push privatization schemes to dismantle it? Or is this you know, new ed scare just being used to transform public schools into right-wing indoctrination camps, pushing the, the patriotism and you know, right-wing Christianity like the KKK was once gunning for? That's such a great question, because I think it's really easy to just sort of put all these groups into the same box and label it parent rights, but they're not actually all after the same things. So for example, where I am in Massachusetts, we we really don't have much of a sort of Moms for Liberty style presence. But what we have are conservative groups that are very consciously targeting affluent parents in, in districts and in places, you know, that have uh, big houses and where, you know, kids have their eye on the Ivy League. And there you see the message being that any effort to make the experience of public education more equal is going to hinder your kids effort to get into Harvard or Yale. And this is a very potent message. That was actually a big part of Glenn Youngkin's appeal in Virginia. But think that's very different from the kind of Moms for Liberty 
argument that your kids are being indoctrinated and that everything happening in the school, um, whether it's first COVID mitigation, then critical race theory, then social and emotional learning, now gender related stuff, all of that is, a, is an attempt to turn the kids into Marxists and undermine Western civilization as we know it, the family in particular, right? Like those are not the same targets at all. The um, I think where they overlap is that the very well-organized, very well-funded groups that see this moment as their opportunity to drive forward school privatization and the, the sweeping school voucher programs that are being enacted in one red state after another, they see both of these sets of groups as working to their advantage. Because wherever, wherever you see these sorts of campaigns unfolding, there is bitterness, divisiveness, chaos. And I do not need to, to tell people in Bucks County about that because you're experiencing it day after day, right? That there are, you know, feeling like there is there is chaos erupting all around you really serves no one unless you happen to be an organization that sees chaos as an opportunity to to really drive this this goal of school privatization. So it's not all the same, but there are definitely some powerful interests that would like it to be the same. How has the media, in, in your opinion, um, been covering this, these, these school board wars? What are they getting right and what are they missing? Well, I think on the one hand, there, you know, there's a lot of coverage. And, and in some ways, that's good because you know, school-related stuff doesn't always get that much attention. I think they tend to miss the sorts of nuances that I was just pointing out. They lump all these actors into the same camp. And what they end up doing is sort of laundering the extremism. And so again and again, we hear this theory of change, as I refer to it, that, you know, like parents were really mad because schools were closed. And then they were really mad because of COVID related mitigation efforts. And then we, you know, their anger continues to morph over all of these things, right? So sometimes it's critical race theory, and then it's gender ideology. Or we hear that, you know, like when schools shut down, parents uh, got a glimpse of what schools are actually doing because suddenly their kids were attending school on Zoom. Well, what I was always curious about is that why then would those parents be the ones to demand the loudest that schools reopen. If they were really mad about what schools were teaching, wouldn't that have shown up in their demands? So I feel like the, the too often the media reports present what is essentially a sales pitch, and then they miss the growing extremism of, of what's happening. Um, I am glad to see that there is so much coverage of book banning. And because you would be amazed, the, the polls are remarkably consistent that Americans, regardless of their party, agree at a time when they agree on nothing that they are opposed to book banning. And so the more this movement gets associated with book banning, I think the better. The, the more we start to see it lose its grip on, on local school politics. Finally, your next book, 
the Education Wars, a Citizen's Guide and Defense Manual is coming out next year, and in my opinion, not soon enough. Can you give some advice about what public education defenders in Bucks County should be doing to effectively counter these attacks? Yes, connect with folks in other parts of the country where you see groups of parents, educators, and people who just live in the community successfully banding together. And I'm thinking of a place like New Hampshire, where one election after another, they are bas- people are basically rising up and telling these you know, parental rights candidates, thanks, but no thanks. I'm getting ready to write a story and it's going to open with someone who has been voted down four different times in the last six months. And it's because voters get a look at what parent rights really means and they don't like it. And I think what's, you know, what is so inspiring is that the you think about the the parents' rights movement is really a backlash movement. Well, the backlash to the backlash is actually having a powerful effect on local politics in places like New Hampshire. And you see people coming together and articulating a vision for what they want schools to look like. And that means fully funding them. That means uh, uh, a safe space for all kinds of kids, especially the ones who are the most vulnerable. And that means, you know, valuing the work that that educators do. And so I would, it's so easy to get, to just, you know, spend all of your time clicking on the the gloomiest stories, right? Because somebody's always going to be doing something terrible, posting something horrible on, on Facebook. But the reality is that there are actually success stories popping up all over the country. And because it's not a, it's not a grassroots, uh, uh, an astroturf movement, because there's not big money behind it, uh, these wins don't get the same amount of attention. But I guarantee you that your folks in Bucks County will find a model for the way ahead if they look to places that are doing such a great job. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at B is for Berkshire. And please check out her Have You Heard podcast that she co-hosts with Jack Schneider, which we'll link to in the show notes. Thanks again, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. This has been The Signal, a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. I'm Cyril McGlego, editor-in-chief and host. For more progressive news, analysis, and opinion from Bucks County and beyond, go to www.buckscountybeacon.com. The Signal is produced by Kevin Mahoney of Raging Chicken Media. Intro-outro music by Moff et Tula, featuring Cartas a Felice, used with permission. Music